radical approaches are the sorts that are crazy the day before they are brilliant. The payoff is enormous, especially for the children who are disadvantaged. Students are the real winners of fearlessly radical principles. Dr. Michael Gaskell. And I'll add that our world needs radical thinking, creative ideas, and imagination. Welcome back to the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning Podcast, where we bridge the gap between theory and practice with strategies, tools, and ideas we can all use immediately applied to the most current brain research to heighten productivity in our schools, sports environments, and modern workplaces. I'm Andrea Samadhi and launched this podcast to share how important an understanding of our brain is for our everyday life and results. My vision is to bring the experts to you, share their research, books, ideas, and resources to help you to implement their proven strategies, whether you're a teacher working in the classroom or in the corporate environment. For today's episode number 253, we have returning guest, Dr. Michael Gaskell, who's a veteran principal from New Jersey, USA, whose episode number 172 on leading schools through trauma sits in our top 10 most downloaded episodes at number six with over 1,500 downloads. Dr. Michael Gaskell is a principal in East Brunswick, New Jersey, and he models the pursuit of lifelong learning as he serves to mentor new principals through the New Jersey Leaders to Leaders program. He's an NJPSA STARS recipient and has been published in over three dozen articles in education journals and blogs, including Education Post, eSchool News, NASSP, EdTech, and ASCD Smart Brief, and has made the most read section of ASCD Smart Brief numerous times which coincides with the fact that his last episode remains in our top 10 all-time most listened to episodes. Dr. Gaskell presents at national conferences and started his own podcast in January of this year, where he interviews successful adults like Diamond Dallas Page, how he conquered his dyslexia and anxiety associated with it. He'll be joining us today to share his new book, Radical Principles, a blueprint for long-term equity and stability at school that will be released in November of this year, but it's currently available for pre-order through the link in the show notes. Dr. Gaskell obviously loves writing and intends to continue his contributions to support learners and educators in written and presentation formats. Let's welcome back Dr. Michael Gaskell from New Jersey for a second time and learn together about his new book, Radical Principles, and how we can all inspire change in our schools and workplaces with radical thinking, creative ideas, and imagination. Well, it's so good to have you back here, Dr. Michael Gaskell, especially after your first interview made such an impact on our audience, sitting in the top 10 all-time most listened to episodes. Welcome back. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you, Andrea. One of the first people I thought of with, with this new book is Andrea, because I love your, your concepts and I know they can tie right into what we're going to talk about today. 
Incredible, incredible. I had a, a good time making up some questions for you. But uh, my first question has nothing to do with the content of the book. It's just how in the earth did you write this book so quickly after the last one? That's what I want to know first off the bat. Yeah, so there's a little bit of craziness. Uh, if anybody knows me personally, they'll laugh when they hear this part. I have a very high energy level, uh, which I should say you do too, because you're texting me Arizona time, like three, four in the morning, and I'm texting back at six or seven in the morning, Eastern time. So there's a lot of things that I do. When I have ideas come into my mind, I pull my phone out and I just start jotting. I might be sitting at the gym and you know, we all know from mindfulness and our wellness work that when we're moving the body, we're moving the mind. And I find my best work is done when I'm taking a walk or I'm exercising or I'm just doing something uh, that involves movement. And it, it applies directly to my creativeness. And it really sort of tunes my mind to do that. Got it. That's, that's a really powerful uh, way to think about how to get it all in, because I know that when you're writing me back, you're, you're arriving to your school and your day is about to begin. And the only way I know how to focus and sit down and write content is early morning. That's, that's the only way it works for me. So I just wondered if there was a secret, how did you do this? You just jot down your ideas and then how, how do you go from writing to completion? Is there some secret to doing this quickly? For me, it's been a lot of practice as an educator, you spend a lot of time, especially as an educational leader, writing to lots of different audiences. So that was a real benefit for me because I got to really practice the process because it's not easy. Anybody can write some pretty creative stuff, but actually putting it together in a cohesive thought process that people might be interested in or that you can help people with by them reading it is the challenge. And I find that, you know, just revising over and over again, then taking a step back and giving that distance of a day or a couple of days or a couple of weeks, and then revisiting and saying, what the heck was I trying to say here and cleaning that up. And I get excited about it. There's a lot of my theme or, or the way that I deliver my writing has a mix of science and research and a lot of anecdotal storylines so that we're weaving this together in such a way that it both is cohesive, but it's also interesting to the reader. So I find that interesting and I just keep going. I just, you know, I, I talk in writing the book about small wins. You, you can't do all this in a weekend oh. or you can't bang out a book in a month. So while it might seem like I did it quickly because it's only a year later, there was a very progressive process. And I was already thinking about this book when I was finishing the last one. Got it. Oh, I love it. This is this is exciting. So, you know, I opened up the podcast episode with a quote that you said about radical approaches being crazy before they're brilliant. And you say in your first chapter that finding innovative solutions to unnecessary and unproductive procedures is part of being radical. So I just wondered, what do you do to keep a radical approach as a school leader and how is this way of thinking beneficial to you and the students you serve and your community being radical? Yeah, so most of all, most importantly of all, it's beneficial to students and especially the most vulnerable students, the most disadvantaged students. We have to start changing the landscape. You can't do Schools are great at setting up systems and following a bureaucracy. And unfor for, fortunately for many, that, that works. Unfortunately for others, 
and these are the kids and the families that need the most help, it does not work at all. It hasn't worked for centuries. And if we just keep going in that direction and standardized testing and punishing kids and things like that, we're not going to help kids. That's the bottom line. So it's really important to remember that when you're choosing a radical approach, you're not just saying, also, I'm going to be out on the front lines. I talk a lot about humility in the book. You're not going to be out on the front lines, banging your chest, making a loud statement, because oftentimes that just antagonizes the people you actually need to get the work done from. So there's ways to sort of work around and, and find solutions that can be creative. Sometimes it doesn't even involve, even involve you directly in the process. You may have some people working around you who have greater informal influence who can move a process or an idea along. And it's okay to step back. The best thing you can do is put your ego aside. And that's really hard for a lot of leaders. Leaders became leaders because, well, they might have fairly big egos and that might work a lot of the time, but for the kids and the situations we need it most, the ego's the enemy. Very true. Very true. So how can this new way of thinking or radical thinking help others in different sectors even? You know, think about a CEO. You're you're a CEO of your school over there. So how could we use this way of thinking in the workplace, do you think, to, you know, use a, a new, creative, imaginative way of thinking? Yeah, you know, a lot of the ideas that I bring into the book are actually from places like the corporate world. And education is great for being one of the last to adopt a great idea. You think about organizations like Google or Amazon and say what you will about them, love them or hate them. They're very successful. And that's not by coincidence. They're doing some things that are very innovative. They're making their employees happy. They're finding ways to troubleshoot issues. We only hear about the bad things, but there's a lot of things happening behind the scenes that are just working. A lot of that has to do with family orientation, making them feel like they can take pride in their work. One of the worst things you can do is create bureaucracy that makes everything feel like I have to comply. Nobody, whether you're a child or an adult, is going to work well if you have to comply. So there's some really important steps when you're applying radical principles, not just in education, but ironically, I stole some ideas from the corporate world, the successful uh, corporate world places that help us understand wow, if I just kind of pull these things together and it's never any one solution, there's no silver bullet to any of this. If anybody thinks they're going to read a book like this and find a silver bullet, then you're not going to really get anything out of it. What you need to do is understand that you're weaving a few ideas together. You're consolidating or stacking, as I like to say, some concepts together that built upon each other really help to sort of synergize a momentum. And that's the kind of thing you want. That's why I talked about the small wins earlier. You, no one wins the Super Bowl because they just got lucky or they had have one great athlete. They do it because they just put together all these little tiny success pieces. And the same thing happens for disadvantaged kids and advantaged kids. And it happens for corporations and those in business. Well, I like how you compared or even thought about the corporate world, because I'm always doing that because I came from education and then I went into the corporate world. And I'm always thinking, yeah, schools, we want them to, to be like those corporations that people want to go work for. You want your teachers to be like, oh, how can I get a job at, at Dr. Gaskell's school? Like everyone wants to go work at these new innovative companies. So it's it's interesting when we can take um, comparisons from the corporate world and bring them to the schools and vice versa. You know? yeah, and if I may, just to tag along to what you just said, 
one of the things that makes really successful organizations innovative, whether it's a school or a corporation, is something called multiplier leaders. And there's a difference between multiplier leaders. Those are leaders that surround themselves with people who they like to say are smarter than them, or at least in a certain area. And then to say to them, you have a specialty in this area. Tell me what you think. Poke holes in my idea. What's not working with what I'm proposing? And this is a terrific kind of a leader because it both empowers those people underneath them. And it also gets great ideas out on the table that would just die in a corner otherwise. Unfortunately, there's too many what we call diminisher leaders. These leaders are driven by ego. They're narcissistic. They think they have all the answers. They think they can, they don't need to listen to anybody. They can just go on their own. We may know a few leaders like this out in the world today. And they're very dangerous because what they're doing is they're ignoring very good advice because they think they know better than somebody else. And I almost always don't know better than the collective population of people around me. And if I can take their ideas in and absorb them and then make it a better process for everybody, that's powerful stuff. And that's when you start to see innovation. That's so true. And that's what I feel like I'm doing on the podcast when I'm interviewing people. Yeah, because, absolutely. you know, I'm picking their brains and it's, it's an amazing thing to do to learn something new from someone who studied something for 20 years and then tie it into something someone else says. And that's how progress is made. And I think that's why people tune in because we're always picking new people, new concepts. And, and I feel like the, the thread has been the same. You know, we're, we're trying to do the same things since three years ago, but mm -hmm. it's just reaching new people, new ways, new thought processes. And, and you're right. It's hard sometimes for those leaders to step back though, but that's what's that's what's needed, right? Absolutely. And every one of us has that ego chipping away at us. So if we're cognizant of that, it's not like there's people that are just completely narcissistic and egotistical. And there's people who are wonderfully, um, you know, humane and have humility. Instead, there's a little bit, we're kind of on a spectrum, right? And if we're aware of that, then we can kind of take a step back. There are moments where I think I know I'm right. And as I always like to joke with my staff, my wife often corrects me. You're not always right. And she's 100% correct. And it's important to keep that perspective and to be able to take a step back and to say someone might have a better idea. In fact, they often usually do. Just want to mention another quick example of that. It's called lateral thinking. And it goes along with a really quick story. So there was this truck who had gotten trapped underneath of this bridge, you know, one of these overpasses. And it was blocking all this traffic because it was only one way in and out. So it was creating this anger and the police were there and these people were scratching their heads and you had engineers there looking at it. They were trying to figure out how to, without destroying both the truck and the bridge, get this truck underneath of it and then to get everybody else along their way. And then a little boy came up and said to his dad out loud, dad, why don't we just let the air out of the tires? And it was like, oh my gosh. So here were <laughs> these sophisticated grown adults looking at this in a way that was not lateral thinking. It was very directional. It was very much, we have to either push it through or back it up and, and, ex and expecting some damage. This kid's simple solution saved probably hundreds of thousands of dollars of damage and got everybody on their way. And this was like a 10 year old boy. So I wanna point that out because sometimes we need to be the 10 year old boy or girl and come up with that very obvious concrete thing that we as adults miss because we're so wrapped up in this, this bureaucracy. 
Don't you think that's why we always need students on our boards and councils to come up with ideas? Like whenever I'm stuck with something, I'll go and ask my kids and they'll come up with something I would never have thought of, or they'll come and do some sort of keyboard configuration. I'm like, what are you typing? They have shortcuts (laughs) and they know everything in a different way than we do. So always consult with them first. They're just different in the fact that they don't have the same amount of experience but their knowledge is vast and they always like, this is a great example of, of why we should always look for someone else to ask that question of. Right. Yeah. It's a different lens. You know, we often talk in education about how we stay in education because we feel younger. And I think what people mean is they get these refreshing ideas and solutions. And of course, kids are great on things like justice. So they remind us about that because we get lost in the minutiae and we have to reset that. Kids can do that for us, both with lateral thinking and with justice. Well, what about uh, moving into chapter three of your book? You talk about timing and stacking of ideas. How does that all tie into what we've been talking about? Yeah, so if you understand how timing works, and I'll get a little bit more specific about this. Dan Pink wrote a great book about, he just called it When, and he talked a lot about the importance of understanding timing, both from a very close perspective individually and a moonshot perspective-wise, seeing things from both how we manage our day to the long-term vision of things. So I'll give you a quick example. Our emotions run through these cyclical patterns that are surprisingly predictable every day. There's tons of research that he, he backs us up with. And knowing the way you function will help you work, do your work best. You gave a perfect example better. You said, I perform best in the morning. By the way, most people do that. Not everybody. Some people are night owls and they're much better in the nighttime. I'm just like you. I, my mind is sharp in the morning and I can get a lot of creative work done. So if you understand that, then you should not be doing things like checking email Uh, getting caught up on social media, the things that actually make our brains less intelligent are the worst things you can do when you know you're at your optimal potential state. You should be putting that stuff aside. We talked earlier about kind of like mindfulness and Zen. That stuff is huge when you're trying to be creative and come up with solutions and ideas. So it's really important to understand those times of day for you. Most people go through a mid-afternoon slump. That's because your circadian rhythm is really just kind of resetting itself and it's oftentimes historically when you know cavemen and women would take a nap we don't really have that in our schedule most of us at least not me and i'm betting you with kids and your busy schedule you don't either so we really really need to be able to understand these times by the way 3 3 30 is a great time to do things like check email because your mind's not creative so just get through some of that minutia at that time of the day if you're that kind of a, a, a a pattern of cycles And it's really important to remember that restoration and rest are so important. We talk a lot about productivity and working hard and coming up with great solutions, especially in Western society. But what we don't recognize, or we're starting to do a better job, thanks to podcasts like yours, is recognizing restoration and rest. We have to let our body recharge, just like you put the phone in at night or it's going to go dead. You have to recharge your body and your mind so that you are prepared to manage some of the challenges and more importantly, be creative the next day. I just released an episode yesterday that was analyzing some of the top leaders on um, longevity and they were explaining their workouts and they were saying as they were getting older, their workouts were getting less demanding. So it's not always about pushing hard and through, it's about doing um, consistent 
cardio or workouts um, at a certain rate at like a zone two, or you don't have to always push so hard. And that's, you know, it was an interesting thing for me to look at, you know, most people think, you know, go hard, push hard, get it in quick. And, and uh, that's not really the case for, you know, for productivity and, and making our bodies work the right way. It's we need that rust in there. So true. Quantity is not quality. And so if you're making a more qualitative experience, I often say to teachers when I'm observing a lesson, and maybe I have some suggestions for them, don't worry about the 19 things you think you did wrong in your head. Let's focus on two or three. And oftentimes what happens in a situation like that, not just for teachers, but for anybody in a work environment or a productivity environment, is then they start to generalize to uh, these other areas they were already concerned about. So now you're doing this thing, which by the way, you mentioned earlier, is like stacking. So I, I talk a lot about stacking in my own work which is this idea that you're adding ideas on top of each other. So that let's say you have, I don't know, six ideas that you think will help either a kid be more successful or a company be more profitable. If out of those six or seven ideas, four work, who cares about the other two or three that don't? You just hit four things instead of one and you're consolidating and compounding that success rate. That's what stacking is about. And so that kind of works hand in hand with timing, managing timing and understanding that when you consolidate things that are likely to be successful, even if you miss out on a couple of them, you're hitting most of them. Well, this one was was the, my next question here um, going into chapter four. It kind of reminded me when you just were talking about, um, you know, taking your ego out and letting other people lead. There's an energy conservation practice in that component there that you're talking about. And you talk about using mentoring programs to focus your time and energy, and those help students. But I was thinking, wow, that is a smart way to conserve your energy. Let others do some of the legwork. Is that what that chapter was about? Leveraging? Yeah, def yeah, I definitely hit on that. So that has a lot to do with the idea that, you know, if you're in a leadership position, or you're in a position of authority of any kind, you should almost always be delegating some of the work that allows you to maximize your creativity and your productivity. So if there's some minutia work, and there is, there's just, that's just a part of life. It's not like that's a bad thing, but there's certain things that have to get done. Those are the kind of things you need to be able to delegate out. And I talk a lot about some examples there. Like in one case, I had uh, to distribute some uh, communication devices. And I was expected to do an inventory of those devices each week. And that might not sound like a big deal, but for a principal who's running a, a large school, that's a waste of time. And I'll tell you why. It took me about an hour a week to make sure that I was tracking down all these communication devices. And that's an important task, but it's not my important task. If I can find somebody I trust who can go do that for me, that's an hour a week, that's 36 hours a year, 38 hours a year, depending on your the length of your school year. That is a full work week I'm giving back to kids, to families, and to my school that I'm not subtracting because of minutia. So this is some of that concept you're referring to, to be able to give up some of that. And this is, you know, this is a tough thing sometimes for, you know, micromanagers. So they should be very conscious of, if I know, and this goes back to my whole multiplier diminisher thing too, by the way, you know, give, give that out to somebody who takes pride and enjoys it so that I can focus on the larger goals of helping my school and kids be successful. 
That's really interesting because the majority of emails that I get are people that are wanting to help with some part of the podcast. They're like, you know, how can I help you with your podcast? Do you want me to edit your videos? And I'm thinking, no, I don't want anyone <laughs> editing my videos. I don't want anyone touching my editing. And it's just funny to notice yourself not wanting to give up some of the things that you know are your strengths and talents. It's it's really hard, but then there's a, a time that I'm going to have to look at, you know, leveraging myself a little bit better um, to do different things and to keep the amount of interviews going. There, it's just got to be at some point you got to let go. It's a great perspective because if someone does 80% the quality you do and it really doesn't have an adverse effect, that's an important recognition that you're able to let that go. And then, like you said, be more creative, dump, diving into these pieces where you're really able to get into a, an interview with some rich topical discussion and and whatever else makes a great podcast, right? There's so much to it. Uh, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting perspective to look at, but it's crucial because we'll kill ourselves if we do everything the way that we want it all the time. So when when I saw that, I thought that is really smart. And, and I could sense it in your voice. It's different this time. Uh, th that's what I mentioned when we first came on. When I'm interviewing someone that does a lot of meditation, I can feel their energy through. It just, it, it shows up and you're calm. You know, maybe it's because it's Friday night. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know. But I'm sure it's that too. That too. There's a difference. It's not like... Um, the first time we interviewed, and it's like, where's where's everything, and what's going on? And then you got the bell you can hear going off, and a lot. Yes, of so that's right. Maybe it's a little bit more peaceful over there, but that that definitely shows with whatever you're doing that might be different. Yeah, look, one of the great things about doing what we do, you as a podcaster, uh, me as an author, is you get all these great ideas from the research you do. You were talking about this earlier. You you have the benefit of talking to all these great minds and getting some really interesting perspectives from them. And, you know, of course, there's this research now that shows that if you listen to podcasts, your, your IQ is higher. I don't know if you've heard this. Oh, and wow. That just seems so obvious to me because yeah. when I listen to these great podcasters like yourself, it's, it's enriching me. So it's the same idea, right? That when we're getting all this information from what the work we're doing, it's giving us that perspective. And it's also reminding us because we can get lost in our caveman and women like mantra. And so this brings us back to that higher brain functioning, which is why I recommend listening to podcasts like yours on a regular and basis. Yours. And yours. Uh, Mine's coming back. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's fun. It was good to see you start that for sure. It's been a pleasure. And you gave me some great advice. I want to thank you for that as a, as an expert in the field. Oh, what was it? What did I tell you? You talked to me about this mic, I'm the <sighs> microphone I'm using right now, and just some of the other uh, tools that you gave me and advice and ideas. I know you have a really high tech uh, board over there. I haven't gotten that yet, but uh, but I'm I'm eyeing those things. So, well, it's it's interesting that no matter what you have, it is the content because my board, my soundboard broke over the holidays, and I was thinking, oh, what am I going to do? And it's going to sound so crackly. And some of my audience just said, you know, I could tell it was different, but it's the content we come for. So, you know, it doesn't really matter what your sound is. You just do what with what you've got and you just keep producing quality and people will, will listen. Yeah. And the, the better part of what you gave me was encouragement. 
you get made me believe in myself. And that's, the, that's the kind of thing that adults need more of that. We don't, we just sort of dismiss that. Like, well, that's for kids. And it's not, we need that kind of positive feedback and reinforcement and support. And, you know, it was so, I was so grateful to have received that from you. And it just reminded me of how important it is as adults to do that for each other. Oh, that's so important. And thank you for, for telling me that. That's it's important to me. You know, when you get a flash of something, you're like, I should do this. And yes, yeah, maybe I shouldn't, but I always do it anyway. I don't <laughs> but yeah, you're right. It's very important for all of us to listen to those promptings to do the things that we innately know we should be doing. Absolutely. So chapter five, you mentioned learning to manage the most negative forces of online exchanges on email and social media. And you say reply only twice as your mantra for um, helping you with effective communication. So can you give an example of how you put this into practice? Because I know we've only ever had positive exchanges with each other, but I'm sure it doesn't always go that way. So what what is this concept that you talk about? Yeah, so just a little background. First of all, I stole this idea from another author because that's what we do. We take great ideas from other people or as Harry Wong, the great educational speaker said, we, we do research which is the same thing as stealing uh, in, in, in this concept. So Jay Bear talks a lot about this. Uh, he, has, he wrote a book called Hug Your Haters. And it's all about customer support. And it's all about this logic that we need to think differently about how we respond to people and to situations when we're confronted with some antagonism from either a customer, which of course is, is kids and families, in schools and you know just customers in, in, in business. So the idea is this, you don't wanna get caught up into this vicious cycle of a web of online back and forth where you're basically being pulled into an argument that's not that logical. And unfortunately there's too many of these things that you see happen on you know, social media and flaming as they call it, where they're just, people are just out there to harass you or they just wanna to try to get as much from you as they can. and, and and, and do it in an immoral way. So this logic works like this. You get in, let's say for instance, you get an angry email from a parent and it might or may not be legitimate. They're emotional about their kids. That I'm always gonna start with a recognition of. Okay, I have kids, I know what that feels like. Even if what they're saying seems illogical or rather overly demanding. And I will reply back that I'm sorry that they are experiencing this or feeling this way and that I'd like to help address it. If on the second reply from them, I get a second email that is equally antagonistic or even worse. It is at that point that I say, why don't we talk? And I usually pick up the phone at that point. And I will tell you why I do that. People say, oh, you're going to talk on the phone. Doesn't that take longer? It takes a lot less time, first of all. And secondly, the experience is much more qualitative because we're hearing each other's intonations. When we're on email or social media, we're living in a two-dimensional world. We're missing all those cues. But when we're talking it on a phone, we hear that intonation. And even better if you're in person, of course, because then you see the body language as well. But intonation is huge because they actually get to hear that I'm a human being, that I care about kids, and then I'll do what I can to help their kid, whether we agree with how that, to go about that or not. And so that tends to really cancel out the future escalations that we find. The same thing happens on social media. So Jay Bear's advice is, look, after the second response from them that's like retaliatory or antagonistic or whatever it is, you have to cease talking online. And the other benefit of this is 
if you're locked up in an online battle back and forth, your mind is now wrapped up in this and it's racing and it's distracted and you're not doing all those great creative things we talked about earlier, because guess what happens? Your mind moves into the primitive thinking state and away from the creative higher mindset or that meditative state you talked about. So you're losing that opportunity. You're robbing yourself and more importantly, your school and your kids who need it from you from that opportunity of being uh, a good leader and being a, a good you know, supporter of them. So it's really important for those two reasons. Number one, because you're going to get a more effective result. And number two, and probably more importantly, you're going to, when you cease that dialogue back and forth, you're going to be able to succeed in focusing more on the more productive things. And of course, the other thing is, is if it is like parents and families and people do so often this day and age, whether it's on social media, like Facebook, or it's on an email, your emails get often get posted on, on Facebook. So you always want to be looking like you are taking the higher ground and you are being professional because no one can argue with that. But it's mm-hmm. interesting how, you know, when you're out there doing big things, you're going to get the supporters and then you're going to get the ones who criticize you. And having some system in mind, like don't engage past two is is a great way to stop that escalation because i can see how it happens for sure yeah absolutely and if you offer to go offline with them you always have to offer to go offline that's the most important part of this right most people will take you up on that especially concerned parents but some people will not and they'll continue to flame you online at that point it's okay to cease this and remove yourself you know defriend or or ignore them or whatever the feature is you can do on social media because they're all out there you need to completely remove yourself because now they're advertising that they're harassing you and you're just saying i offered an outlet for us to have a direct dialogue which is more respectful of me giving my time to you and you made the choice you made so i am ending this conversation you can defend that anywhere yeah, that's a really good strategy. I liked that when I saw it. And then moving into uh, chapter six, I really believe in, in having a team of supporters behind us. I think it's crucial these days, especially with what's going on in the world today. Life is hard. How are you using support networks or mastermind groups to empower radical principles to engage with other leaders and create these safe zones that we know leads to more innovation? So you're going to see a theme here because this goes right back to that higher order thinking, that Zen, that mindfulness. What happens when mastermind groups get together is they become more like those multipliers. They become support networks that are advocates for each other. It's a safe harbor and you can unload some of these frustrations and you can get ideas from each other. And we know that when we're able to unload some frustrations on a good listener, we feel better about that. That's just human nature. We're not necessarily looking for a solution from them. We're just looking for an ear like we might often do with our spouses. And it's so important to know that when we have these support networks like this, we have an outlet. Think about it like this. I got so hooked into one of the mastermind groups I was a part of that I remember thinking to myself, I can't wait for Tuesday night because I'll get past this. Just that is something that is is motivating and invigorating. And then, of course, when you get there, you're suddenly thinking in higher forms of cognition, as I said, and you're working along other people who both have the same kinds of challenges and frustrations, but the same aspirations. These are motivated people. 
people don't join mastermind groups because they're not motivated. And so there are people that have these wonderful ideas. And again, we talked about perspective and lens, the, the kid with the air and the tires, the same thing happens in mastermind groups. I might come up with a problem and someone comes up with an idea. And I think, why didn't I ever think about it? That's fantastic. And then you go and apply it and it works so well, at least in an adapted way in your context. So it's so important to remember that mastermind groups are not really much different than some of the very successful groups that have stood the test of time, 80, 100 years, I think of uh, 12-step programs. And of course, we're not. this is not for addicts, although you might call addicts work, but it certainly is uh, you know, that kind of degree of support that's needed in a day and age where everything's so hypertense, we got to quiet the hyperactive hive mind here. And the best way to do that is to get together and work in smart ways and in supportive ways. And how do you do this? Normally just uh, you set it up and it's weekly or how, how do you set yeah. it? Yeah. Sometimes it's weekly. Sometimes it's monthly. I mean, there's all kinds of variations of this. And it's easy to set it up on social media. It's easy to set it up with colleagues across the county or the state. There, you can just start advertising this and suddenly you have this. Then you start to develop a framework. And some of it might be like an introduction. You often might do something like an around the horn where everybody's sharing a concern or someone's on the hot seat's a popular mastermind. So their hot seat is posing a problem, which by the way, pretty much all of us have had some variation of that problem. So we're connecting immediately and then we're digesting and, and figuring out, well, what are ways to work around that? And then of course, there's that support. There's that encouragement that happens in support networks like this, that we talked about the feedback thing earlier, how significant this is for adults and yet how minimized it is. Like we're not tough if we're not take, if we can't handle, uh, you know, challenges and need uh, encouragement and feedback. That's a joke. We all need the feedback and we get better and stronger when we when we receive that kind of support. So masterminds do this thing where they both present problems uh, that are then, of course, explored to solutions and they support each other in ways that are like these support networks that we know from decades and decades of evidence and research work. So masterminds are a neat thing that have started to make their way into education. And I'm glad to see them here because they are helpful and people should be looking at options out there. They're, they're there. You just have to Google. For sure. And they've been used in business for years. Like I've, yep. I've been doing masterminding for years and, and that's where a lot of my really good friends came from uh, all around the world. But yeah. uh, it's, it's neat to hear you talking about this in schools now, for sure. Absolutely. And the other great thing about it is, you know, coaches are a terrific thing to have, but most schools don't have the financing to get educational leaders and, and, and probably a lot of businesses don't either to have coaches guide them along in, a, in their coaching of leadership. So masterminds really serve as a great replacement of that. And they're much cheaper. Sure. Usually free. Yeah, definitely. Well, loyalty, this is a big one for me. Um, what is radical loyalty and how does this concept breed more success in schools beyond what we'd normally see? I am at the point in my career where I can say to any teacher in my building, do you trust me when they're upset about something or, you know, maybe, maybe that parent's flaming them on the email or they just need help with something. They have a problem. And I know what the answer is going to be. They're going to say honestly to me, of course I do. And when you get that kind of loyalty from people who work with and for you, you are able to take advantage of that in ways that you couldn't without that kind of loyalty. So let me give you a quick example. 
if you're trying to push along a few years back, I, there's this program called Positive Behavior Support in Schools. PBIS is the national brand of that. PBSIS is the New Jersey brand. And Rutgers does some great uh, work with this. They've based it on research. And PBSIS is incredible because you're going to know that this is my life, why this is my life. It targets the supports and success and incentivizes the kids most in need and most vulnerable. So by reinforcing this, I mean, it celebrates everybody in the school, but then we particularly look at kids in the most need and, and find ways to help them. These programs started in urban schools because that's where the greatest need was. But then we started scratching our heads saying, well, this would actually work in suburban schools. So why don't we bring it there? So I, I'm in a suburban school and we brought it there and we cut our suspension rates uh, by two thirds. We cut our bullying in half, everything got reduced and the climate warmed. And it was not easy to convince the teachers that this, especially some of the older guard, that this was going to work, that being nice to kids or incentivizing them was actually going to, you know, some of them would say to me, well, why are we giving them rewards for doing what they should be doing? And I said, and that's a great question, but if, but if we know it works, who really cares? And, and so it's really important to get teachers on board because if they're on that sort of nexus of, I'm not really sure this is going to work, you need to be able to ask them, do you trust me? And if you know what your answer is going to be and you're able to get there with them, then it's going to be well worth it. So you got to build loyalty and trust. There's some really quick, easy ways to do this. If a teacher needs to go home five minutes early because their kid's sick or something, don't get lost in that minutia we talked about earlier. Tell them, I got your, I'll cover your class if I have to. And they will remember that five minutes and give it back to you a hundred thousand fold. So it's little things like that. It's, just thanking them for being there for kids every day. It's that feedback we talked about. Teachers need that more than anyone right now because they're really on the front lines uh, being antagonized by you know some people who are struggling, I think, with some of their own challenges, both pandemic and post-pandemic. So I think it's really important that when you can get to that place where you do these small yet significant things for teachers. I went around to all the classrooms the other day and just wrote a post-it, something positive. Do you know those teachers? These are teachers, these are adults took the post-it, blew it up and hang it up in front of their desk. There was like a dozen of them that did this. And they said, the reason I did that is that was so encouraging. And I just needed to see that to get through my day. So it's little things like that, that build loyalty. And then you can go do some of these great creative things, like reduce your suspension rate by two thirds. Wow. That's amazing. I love that. That's how it translates. Wow. And then, so thinking about how would we encourage loyalty towards others we work with versus like in the workplace, thinking about, you know, I, I even remember the staff room and when I was a teacher, I would avoid it because I would want to avoid dealing with some of the people that I knew weren't loyal or in the workplace, just didn't social, socialize in the same way because of this. You didn't know who to trust in certain places. How do you build that so that your staff rooms aren't that way or your water cooler is a friendly place to go grab your water? I'm going to draw on the great work of Todd Whitaker here. And you know, I've, I've referenced him quite a bit in my writing because he's got some good psychological responses to what you just said. So here's what I'm going to say to you. Somebody once said to you know, an educator, who do you sit next to, the difficult parent or the difficult teacher in a discussion? And the response was, whoever's more difficult. 
Now yeah. think about that. That's the exact opposite logic of what you were saying. And it's human nature for us to run from those people. The problem is those people are so used to us running from them. They're like the bad kid. The bad kid expects us to give up on them. They expect to get the negative feedback. If instead you're sitting right next to that person and you're hitting them head on with, tell me your concerns, and then redirecting it and putting some perspective into it, suddenly you're actually listening to them, even if it's some of it's a bunch of uh, complainant banter, right? If you, you know, look, that, that faculty room with the people, the four people out of the hundred that are complaining, that's called the loser support group. Let's be, let's be honest. Okay. Yeah. So the only way you're going to, and the other thing I should mention is, is that loser support group gets smaller and smaller when you start to build this trust, but by sitting with them and actually doing the exact opposite, it's like a difficult, uh, person who's in the stands of a game and they're screaming and yelling and maybe your security or like me, a, a principal at a basketball game that I'm supervising. People say, you know, oh, like call the security or wave to them or something and, you know, make a big deal out of it. No, you go up and sit right next to them and say, hey, how you doing? You enjoying this game? Isn't this a great game? I did when I was doing some work with uh, urban schools for classroom management, I did a thing for our state where we would go into these schools. And this was a very poverty stricken school in Newark and uh, Newark is a, an urban, you know, very demographically challenged area. So, you, you know, I come into this parking lot and there's this gravel there and the building is dilapidated and I go into the building and the teachers just look spent. They look done. And unfortunately for them, I walk in, what do I know? I'm this white guy with a suit on that works in a suburban district. I knew that I had to build trust and I only had about 15 to 20 minutes to do it. So what did I do? I talked about my experience working with behaviorally disabled kids when I was a special education teacher. I talked about how kids would walk into my class having just been beat up by their drunk parents. And this is what I was receiving to start their day. How was I managing that? How was I managing the kid who I found out had an arsenal of 20 guns in his room the summer before and he was coming into my class? And here's how you handle kids like that. You build relationships. It's the same thing. Unfortunately, we're so scared of people like this that they expect us to give up on them. And that's the exact opposite response we should be giving them. So what did I do when I went into the school in Newark is I said, who's the most difficult kid in your class? And the teacher was like, well, over there. And I said, okay, I'm going to go sit next to him. Because by the way, nobody was sitting next to him. And I went and sat next to him and I said, hey, how you doing? He said, okay. I said, how's your day going? He said, okay. And do you know, we started to get into like a quick two minute conversation. I said, oh, do you like this team and that? Th and she said to me, she said to me, how did you do that? And I said, what do you mean? She said, he was so well behaved even after you left. Now that's huge. Think about that. You know why? Because I treated him like a human being and it hasn't happened for him in a long time. Is his behavior offensive and problematic like the loser support group? Of course. However, if I give him the exact opposite thing, he can't, I'm not mirroring his behavior. And unfortunately, it's human nature for us to mirror someone's behavior. And we should never bring ourselves down to that level. We should hold a higher standard and then expect them to come up to that. Just like I talked about with Reply Only Twice. Exactly. Well, this is good. This is good, Dr. Gaskell. So what about, now this was one that I don't know a lot about, so I'm going to ask the question, but it was in chapter eight, when you were talking about how to help faculty to counter the effects of institutionalized inequities. So where do you even begin to cover this topic? How do you create solutions for these big problems that we see in our schools and workplaces today? I'm going to give you a great example. 
So we talked about the teachers earlier who don't mean to be, but, you know, subconscious bias impacts how we treat children. So I'll give you a quick example. There was a kid a few years ago in my building and he was that kid that was too big and he was too loud and he ran down the hall too much. That's the kid he was. He also happened to be African-American. And unfortunately, subconsciously, the reality is whether they would like to admit it or not, there were people who formed opinions about him. However, behind that tough exterior, by the way, he was about six feet tall and he was an eighth grader, a seventh grader. Um, Behind that tough exterior was this charming young man who just wanted some positive support. And here's why I know that. We started a program in my school called Middles to Littles. And that program actually created an opportunity for kids like him, if he was good, to go read to the preschoolers, who you can either do this in person or online now with virtual. They, I happen to be lucky and have them in, in person at the time. And this kid became a little kid again. And you know, the kids didn't see a tough, tall African-American boy. They saw an older kid, because that's what happens with three and four-year-olds. They're completely innocent and they're screaming and high-fiving and thanking him for reading them this wonderful story. And here's the best part of it. He's reading a story for three and four-year-olds. He has a reading problem. Now, how does he feel about his reading? Whether it's a, a younger book or not, he just read the kids and got them excited. And suddenly this kid's behavior is changing in the halls and teachers who were going up and cornering him and waving a finger at him. So no wonder he's going to get combative, even though he shouldn't have been running, are now going up to him and saying, hey, when are you reading again? And suddenly his whole demeanor changes. So that's how you start to see, because now I can say to teachers, guess what? You just changed the kid's behavior. Why? Because you encouraged him and you got to see him on video reading to kids. They said, I never thought he could do that or that he would do that because we thought he would just laugh, laugh us off when we asked him. But I made the wrong assumption. And that was a subconscious bias. I should have never done that. And thankfully, I changed my, you know, I shifted my gears and that kid excelled and flourished beyond that. And that's what it's all about. Now you can go back to teachers and say, remember that kid who was kind of like running around and then we were suddenly able to get him to be, he read to little three-year-olds. That's like pet therapy, <laughs> you know, and it works. That just had made me think of a flashback of our first interview where we opened up with who was that person that's now a PhD. And Oh, right. That's another story. So here's a really funny story. So two thirds of my staff is new to me this year. And yet I knew to me, but like I know well enough about them and they also know well enough about me that I can still try the do you trust me routine. And so what happened was um, a few years back, I did an activity where I showed a, an evaluation of the kid who was in third grade. And this kid had all kinds of learning problems and hostility and ADHD and uh, poor social uh, emotional control and all these things, six months below level, had unrealistic expectations, according to the evaluator, because he wanted to be a doctor. And what happened was I said, tell me about this kid and make some predictions. What do you think is going to happen to him? He's going to get into addiction. He's going to get to jail. He's he's never going to get to college. Um, he's going to have all he's going to have mental illness, the whole nine yards. Right. And I said, how are, what are some of the things we can do to help him? So we talked about some of the things we could do to help him. And they were very typical, you know, well, we can get him a, a peer, we can get him a mentor, or we can try to work him into a restorative service plan and things like that. And then I said to them, you know, this kid. And eventually someone said, is it, was it you? And I said, yes, that was me, a struggling third grader who was told I would never basically amount to anything. I wasn't going to be a doctor and that I should have more realistic expectations than wanting to go to college. 
And the reason I tell that story to the, te to the teachers is because I want them to change their mindset about kids that they see and the challenges they face because everybody has the potential. I'm living proof of that. And I get to share that with them. By the way, everybody has some variation, maybe not that significant, of a story like this, and they should be sharing it with their kids. They should be. For some reason, adults are very fearful of this because it makes them vulnerable, but it actually offers the exact opposite response from kids. Kids believe in and respect us more because they know that we're not perfect. Right. They see right through that. So if we're able to say, hey, this is me and this is what I struggle with, there's a sudden level of respect that's, that's given us as a result. Totally true. I saw that and heard that from a lot of my teacher friends when they had to do Zoom and then they didn't know the functions of how to <laughs> operate it. And they're like, oh, my goodness, I don't know how to do this. And then the students were helping them with the technology when, you know, they they love to help and solve. Problems. And probably the kid they last expected. Right. Least expected. Right. Yep. Very true. Yeah. Well, just getting into chapter nine, you know, I've seen this topic covered on Netflix shows where they try to address the consequences of bad online behavior. And it's a topic of everyone who's got a student or they've got a child that's using technology because it takes just a quick glance of your social media account to form a judgment of you that never goes away. So how are you helping our next generation to recognize the consequences of their online presence? Yeah, I think it's important for them to know that everything they put online is not anonymous. One of the misnomers and assumptions kids often make is, well, if I delete it, it's gone. Or, you know, it's not, it's, I can be anonymous and I can be, unfortunately, therefore, there's this thing called the disinhibition effect. And this, what that means in layman's terms is, I can be pretty mean online and get away with it. And some people take unfortunately pleasure in that because of our, of our primal human nature. If you can get them away from some of that primal human nature, that's one way. But the other thing to make them aware of is that you are not anonymous online. And a perfect example of this is a few years back, some kids were misbehaving online and they got into Harvard. That's a pretty good school. Okay. And Harvard decided to go look at their social media accounts and found some old stuff from sometimes these kids were 12 or 14 years old or, or older and realized that they were really being offensive or rude or crude and, and de-selected them from being in, at Harvard. So not only did they not get into Harvard, but it was also very difficult for these kids who basically were blacklisted, right, to then get into another college. Well, you got into Harvard, why didn't you get in there? And then you have to explain the whole thing. So I think it's really important for kids to understand there are consequences, both short and long-term, by the way. I gave you a long-term example. A short-term example is the fact that we know that when kids are engaging in negative behavior online, I talked about this earlier, they're suddenly back in their primal state, just like, just like adults can be, and they're not thinking productively and creatively. They start to get into more negative behaviors. They get suspended more. They're absent more. And all of those things start to multiply as problems. We have to find antidotes to that. One of them is education of them, making them aware. Uh, and then secondly, showing them examples. I'll give you another quick example. Uh, a lot of uh, young women, unfortunately, feel very vulnerable online and are often the targets of, because of their physical presence. And, and I mean, unfortunately, that's just a reality. So it's really important to steer them away from these fantasy versions or highlight reels of people and show them things like the Instagram, Instagram versus reality study, which Instagram actually did this really cool thing where they show that when people see a, the real versions of well-known actors or famous actresses or famous people, they start to realize, oh, I, I can measure up. They're not that this person that I could never 
achieve to be and things like that. So then they start to feel better about themselves. And then of course, just general ethics online is helpful. The last thing I want to mention about this is the fact that it really does address your mental state in a you know, if you're turning towards positive things, there's also this thing called the benign disinhibition effect. And that's where you're going out to these networks of support that are well monitored and they're free and they're everywhere. And you can actually share some of your concerns and frustrations. Sounds kind of like masterminds, doesn't it? And these people are able to go to these groups and say, I feel vulnerable about, and then just start talking about it and getting support. So these groups are in existence and they're growing. And that's really encouraging because we're taking a problem with social media and we're turning it into an advantage by using the same vehicle to turn kids towards positive pro-social behaviors online because their online presence is going to have a determination in their future and we want them to be successful. Wow, I could keep talking to you and asking you questions on this. This is really interesting. Is there anything that I've missed um, covering radical principles? Have I missed anything? Just a couple quick things um, that I thought I'd mention. So thanks for asking. Um, one is something called the awareness heuristic. So I just, I love this topic. I did some research on it and I'll just touch on this a little bit. So the awareness heuristic is, I'll give you a quick, easy analogy. When people are fearful of flying, they have a disproportionate view because our brain can't consolidate all the factual information in a, in a logical way. So if you're fearful of flying, it's an unrealistic fear because you're, you're safest as people know from the research or should know that when you're up in, a, in an airplane, you're actually safer than in any other mode of transportation. And by far, it's not even close. It's not even close. The same logic applies to, and, and I want to be sensitive around this topic because it's about school shootings and violence and things like that. S students are safer in school than anywhere else, including home, and not even close again. Statistically, the numbers are off the charts. So when people hear or see about, and I don't, again, I don't want to minimize the sensitivity of this topic, but when they see or hear about, uh, you know, school violence and things like that, they magnify the proportion of what's happening in their mind because it's all over and the social media and media in general doesn't help because they, they just show this everywhere. And we think that it happens far more commonly than it does. So understanding and recognizing the awareness heuristic, which is this inaccurate consolidation of information because our brain doesn't have the capacity to pull all these pieces together. It, it's important to that. It actually helps us to take a step back and say, Oh, okay. So there is this more realistic you know, set of facts and it is a more comforting set of facts. So it's important to have that in mind. Um, and that's helping people do that is, is another radical approach to helping people be better in schools. And then the only other one I want to mention, just the things like binaural beats, which I might've mentioned in my last interview, just, it's real important. You talked about mindfulness and wellness and tuning the brain. Binaural beats is really cool because you can take two different sounds, put them in your ears. And after a few minutes, it actually creates this third virtual sound, very sci-fi, but it's real. And that third virtual sound targets parts of the brain that can put you in a calm state, depends on the, the tone you, tones you choose. It can get you in an energized state. It can get you in a highly focused state. So this is really cool stuff that can make us these more creative, radical people when we sit there and we're working on something. Of course, you can't be like doing this while you're in a class listening to a teacher, but independent work, homework at night, or as a leader or as a teacher or as you know, an owner of a business. When you're coming up with ideas that are important and matter to the success of the people around you, these are the kind of things that you can actually engineer your brain to do, to optimize. And it's really cool stuff. So that was the only other thing I wanted to mention.
Well, that's kind of interesting because one of the top leaders in um, brain training used binaural beats in their program. And so that's like, you know, a program you can buy and use in business. It's geared towards like, you know, winning in the business field or winning with money. And, and yeah. you listen to this program and you have these beats. I never thought of it, you know, being used for students though. You know? So here's here's the problem that we, we just keep coming up with, with you have these highly successful individuals and organizations and they're using all these tools, but we're not creating a place or a structure or a, you know a, a sanctuary for kids to benefit from the, or more importantly teaching them about this so i get excited about that topic because these are tools that kids can leverage to be the best version of themselves and shouldn't we be giving them that opportunity yeah definitely this is interesting that's why i love doing these podcasts i learned so much from them and so for people who want to get your book um, you can pre-order it right i'll put the link in the show notes but do you have anything to say about pre-order or uh, you know yeah you can absolutely it's coming out in a month well i don't know when this podcast will come out but it's coming out in november the book i believe in mid-november and you can pre-order for 20 percent off you get a discount when you do that thanks for sharing the link it's a good read and i think you made a great point earlier it's not just for educators anybody can pick this book up because i talk about things although i bring it back to education you can apply it to anything and so i think it's it's a refreshing read i tend to offer solutions to some of the biggest problems and I think that brings people hope and that's what we need in this world. Well, Dr. Gaskell, I wanna thank you so much for coming back on the podcast for a second time and sharing this guidebook for K-12 leaders as well as the workplace, which is why I geared the questions the way I did so we can all think about using what you're talking about, whether we're in schools or in the workplace. So I want to thank you so much for creating this book, Radical Principles, that I know could be applied everywhere. If someone wants to pre-order it, I'll put a link in the show notes. And I want to thank you so much for your time. It's been my pleasure. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you. If you're enjoying the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast, please don't forget to subscribe so you'll stay up to date with our new episode. While you're there, please feel free to give us a review or a five-star rating as it helps others find us. For more information on our programs, books, and tools for schools and the workplace, visit us at www.achieveit360.com. 